Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Uh, I'm Bruce Klingner. I'm Senior Research Fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I've been here about 11 years and before that 20 years with the CIA and Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, Thank you all for coming. I know it's a beautiful day out there. Uh, I just flew in from Beijing last night where it was very hot and humid, so this is actually quite a a nice change. Um, So I'm I'm hopefully not going to get hit by jet lag while I'm I'm, uh, up here on the dais. Um, in, in Beijing, we got a, a, quite an earful. Uh, we had an American delegation. We heard a lot about the, uh, the trade war between, or the trade reconnaissance by fire, or skirmish, whatever we want to call it. Uh, that was a big topic of conversation, uh, as it has been in Washington. Uh, and then also, North Korea was actually the main focus of our, the group's discussion. Uh, and that, again, reflects what we have in, in Washington. So those two topics really have crowded out most other Asian issues from the focus in in Washington. So what we want to do today is talk about Japan and the U.S.-Japan relationship and the alliance, which I think has, uh, you know, unfortunately been overshadowed by, you know, the hot issues. And we oftentimes neglect our friends, we neglect our allies, uh, and we neglect the importance of long-term strategy in Northeast Asia as well as the Indo-Pacific region. And, and we often are drawn like moths to the flames of the, the hot issues or the, or the, the problems. So what we want to do is, is focus more on the relationship which uh, either is out of the news and is being quietly effective or are there concerns, uh, particularly in Japan, that is being neglected. So when we had the title of Japan, America's Neglected Ally, uh, we had the question mark at the end because we may uh, discover today that it's not neglected, it's just out of the news. Uh, so joining me today uh, really is a, an amazingly distinguished panel um, to, to discuss all of these issues. Uh, Dr. Kent Calder is the distinguished Edward Rushauer professor. He's director of the Japan Studies program at the Nietzsche School at SAIS as well as director of the uh, Rush Hour Center for East Asia Studies. And I believe you may have a new title that? Vice Dean. Vice Dean, Vice right. Dean. So yet another title to add to his, uh, his list. Uh, he also served as special advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Japan uh, under uh, Ambassadors Walter Mondale and Tom Foley. He was awarded the Rising, Order of the Rising Sun Gold Rays with neck ribbon by the Japanese government for his contributions to the development of Japan studies in the United States and the enhancement of mutual understanding between the two countries. Also the recipient of the Yohira Urasawa and Manichi Asia Pacific Prizes for his academic work and the list goes on. 
Uh, Dr. Sheila Smith is a senior fellow for Japan Studies at the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, is the author of, of numerous books, including Intimate Rivals, J Japanese Domestic Politics, and A Rising China, as well as Japan's New Politics and the U.S.-Japan Alliance. Uh, her current focus is on how geostrategic change in Asia is shaping Japan's strategic choices. Uh, she also serves as the vice chair of the U.S. Advisors to the U.S.-Japan Conference on Cultural and Educational Exchange. Uh, and a special treat uh, visitor from Japan, Sunio Watanabe, or Nabe, uh, is a senior research fellow of the Sasakawa Peace Foundation, uh, an independent policy research organization, Tokyo, and is also an uh, adjunct fellow with the Japan chair at CSIS here in Washington, uh, and a senior research fellow at the Rebuild Japan Initiative Foundation. Uh, he previously served as a senior fellow and director of foreign and security policy at the Tokyo Foundation, uh, and then the Mitsui, Mitsui uh, Global Str Strategic Studies Institute in Tokyo. So it, it really is a, a blue ribbon panel we have to discuss these issues. Uh, and we're going to have Nabe go first, sort of as a mini keynote speaker, because uh, many folks in Tokyo have not, at least outside of the, the Japan Watchers uh, crowd, may not have heard him. So he is going to give us the view from Tokyo on many issues, and then the others will not only be commentators, but more panelists presenting their own views. So, Nabi-san, do you have? Thank you, Bruce. Um, I appreciate the introduction. One correction. Actually, I don't have a title for the Japan uh, Initiative for the Japan's Reconstruction. That's the uh, founder of Funabashi Oichi, the, the, uh, my mentor and a good friend, but uh, no formal position. Uh, maybe. That, that's one correction. And, uh, Maybe after but, today you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, the, I'm very happy to be back in Washington, D.C. I, I keep coming back to Washington, D.C. since uh, my 10 years at the CSIS, 95 to the 2005. You know, people don't see often each other. So some people still believe I still live in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I keep coming back to Washington, D.C. Maybe already this time, uh, uh, three times, the third times I came back to the Washington, D.C. this year. So I may come back November. So uh, that, that's my second hometown. And uh, also appreciate the Heritage Foundation that always uh, the, the op give opportunity to discuss the policy issues, especially the blues. Actually, this time, actually, I tried to contact the blues. Uh, what's going on in the U.S. policy toward North Korea? So let, please uh, share your insights, what's going on. So but instead, uh, Bruce said, oh, let's do some conference. And oh, why not? That's more insights from Flora, too. And I appreciate the, 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 my old friend and the mentor, actually, the Dr. Karada, because I used to work in, at the CSIS when uh, Dr. Karada was a Japan chair. And also, Sheila was actually affiliated with a CSIS Pacific Forum when I was uh, the working at the CSIS, right? No? Not really. Okay. <laughs> That's my memory is so bad. <laughs> so let me start with uh, the very good title, Japan, America's Neglected Ally. Yeah? Mm -hmm. It neglected? M maybe not, but somehow isolated in uh, North Korean policy. Maybe. But maybe not. That's very, very interesting uh, things uh, ongoing. But uh, one clear thing is that uh, um, Japan is not neglect neglected uh, because uh, uh, Japan is a very important trade partner. And as you may realize, now our economic minister, Motengi, uh, 
is a, a bilateral talk with uh, the USTL Lighthizer. So that's very hot issue. So, uh, you know, the reason is simple. Japan is uh, one of the closest allies of the United States, and also Japan's uh, one of the major, I mean, Japan is one, one of the major U.S. trade partners. So uh, some trade uh, uneasiness, conflict uh, experienced actually in the, in the past. And uh, the, I tell you why I, um, by, by the way, the, my background is a dentistry. I became a dentist because I, I followed my mom. My mom is a dentist and still the practicing. But I changed the course uh, suddenly and in 1988 when I graduated and I got a license of a dentist. Somehow uh, I talked with my father. My father was a diet member and uh, uh, working on uh, trade issues seriously. And in 1988, what is the major trouble of Japan? And uh, my, my father told me, oh, uh, everything is okay. Economic is good. Politics is stable. But relation with the United States, trade of conflict is a major trouble because uh, Japan is not only the trade partner, but a major ally of the United States. And without it, Japan cannot survive it. That's serious. So I, to I told my uh, father, oh, let me go to the United States to study. And he said, yes. That's my career started. So U.S. trade, conf trade conflict is uh, very familiar to me. And... Uh, uh, later, my father served uh, Meti, uh, at that time Miti, uh, Minister of uh, Industry of uh, International Trade. And the uh, counterpart was uh, Ambassador Carla Hills. She happened to be CSIS after I joined, so it was a very small world. But, um, you know, the trade conflict always there, potentially. And but the reason is simply, um, you know, the economic theory, maybe a trade is uh, good for anybody, but in the real world, there's some losers in the trade. So uh, the very big challenge for the U United States and the Japan is uh, how to adjust it. And uh, now we are tackling on it. So it's not neglected. Uh, it's really needed to talk about uh, uh, something very important things. And uh, what, what is the important one? That's stability in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. And, uh, the, the Abe administration is clearly the showing his own uh, uh, involvement uh, in uh, the Indo-Pacific. And the very good timing, recently the Japanese foreign minister uh, published the uh, uh, blue, blue, blue book for the diplomacy. And uh, that's more clearly stated uh, the uh, Japan's Indo-Pacific strategy. I'd like to introduce, because it's an English version is not coming yet. So I just briefly uh, try to the introduce uh, uh, f based on the Japanese version. I think uh, uh, according to, it, it's a part of this, like this. It's, it's a free and open Indo-Pacific area. So it says, maritime order in the Indo-Pacific area is facing a various threat. Japan promotes a FOIP, uh, uh, free and open Indo-Pacific uh, strategy to remove uh, threats and uh, to maintain the strength in uh, free and open maritime order based on the rule of law and uh, to bring international public goods in the region by assisting high-quality infrastructure based on international uh, standard. And the actual policy described three. 
One is the promotion of a freedom navigation and the rule of law. And the second, economic prosperity through connectivity by high quality infrastructure. And the uh, third one is assistance to maritime law enforcement capability and the HADR and the non-proliferation. As you may realize, that is a ki kind of a countermeasure to the OBOR of China. But Abe is uh, not against OBOR. The seriously try to find uh, the maintain the public goods in the region. I think that's basic idea. That, that, that's easy to explain. So uh, why? Why is that the, the very important part? Because uh, Japan realized uh, no alternative for the U.S. as an allied partner. If U.S. decided to leave the uh, region, what Japan can do is very limited. So, uh, and also, uh, why Japan is not so frustrated is sometimes, uh, you know, described as an isolated partner of, of the United States over the North Korea. Um, you know, the reality is actually that what Japan can do directly to the North Korea is very limited. And uh, uh, what Japan cannot see in the negotiation between the U.S. and the North Korea is two extremes. One extreme is, of course, war or conflict, military conflict. But uh, Japan is afraid of uh, the other extreme, that's uh, too much concession by the U.S. to the North Korea. Accept the North Korea as a nuclear state and starting uh, the, the reduction of a nuclear arsenal. That's, that's kind of a bad scenario. But uh, even such a scenario realized. I think uh, uh, no alternative for Japan to take. So uh, what Japan is uh, trying to do is uh, best to maintain a uh, uh, tie with the United States and uh, try to save uh, international liberal order in, in the region. That's probably that you can uh, find uh, several things uh, recently Abe administration uh, did that. Very interesting case. Maybe you never realized this. Uh, I'd like to introduce. Um, Sasakawa Peace Foundation, uh, which, which I belong to, it has been working on uh, several things, uh, like uh, the promotion of a uh, military officers exchange between uh, Japan and the PLA. And recently, uh, actively, Japan and the military of Vietnam, Vietnamese military. And uh, also promoting uh, Asian Pacific nations, uh, uh, the uh, stability and the prosperity. I think, uh, and in that context, very interesting event in the Sasaka Peace Foundation uh, recently. Uh, we hosted uh, uh, Prime Minister of uh, uh, Republic of Malta in Europe, Malta. You know that Malta is famous for the end of the Cold War to the talk, Malta. And, why? Why Malta? Malta is an island nation and maritime nation and part of EU. So um, actually the Prime Minister Abe visited Malta last year. And uh, uh, this time uh, uh, Prime Minister of uh, Malta, uh, Mr. Mascat, uh, actually the, the met uh, Abe. And uh, very interesting things is uh, uh, the, the both uh, identified and confirmed the cooperation for the Japan EU EPA. That's the de facto uh, FTA, Freedom uh, FTA, Free Trade Agreement. And uh, also, actually, Japan 
uh, uh, and Prime Minister Abe stated that he had prayed for the soul of war debt of Japanese Imperial Navy in World War One. So showing uh, how Japan tried to be the part of the international community, not our own interest, but the saving the public goods. And uh, uh, also, actually, the stated, uh, uh, very confirmed uh, the very important initiative with uh, Malta and Japan to the, the, uh, the uh, international public goods and international order in the maritime area. That's kind of uh, Japan is uh, trying to do, even with Malta. And uh, also another initiative that's actually in the, in the Iwaki city of Fukushima, uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe held uh, the summit uh, with uh, Pacific Island nations. That, that was a May. And uh, it, it, that, that, that was uh, the very amazing, the, uh, the confirming a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, uh, strategy with uh, participants. And uh, it, it confirmed, and all leaders confirmed the promotion and the establishment of the rule of law and the freedom of uh, navigation, pursuit of economic prosperity through strengthening and in the connectivity, and the commitment to peace and stability, such as cooperation in the field of maritime safety and the disaster risk reduction. Look at this. That's a very clearly the consistent, consistent uh, strategic thinking in uh, every the move of uh, Japanese government. I'm not a supporter of, uh, by the way, the government. I never belong to the government. And uh, uh, actually, the politically, I'm not so close to the Prime Minister Abe's position. But I was, by the way, the, the advisor to the, the uh, former Noda administration's the cabinet. So, but I. We, we, I mean, like-minded Japanese people supported uh, Prime Minister Abe's strategy and should be continued in the uh, next administration, uh, whichever LDP or opposition, because uh, that makes sense. And uh, that more makes sense because of uh, Trump's America. We understand the frustration of the people who are not so well doing, uh, I think, uh, the life of American. Some, some people are getting very rich and nice, but some are not. And uh, the four leader really need to take care of the, these people. And sometimes, uh, you know, very effective to say, oh, enemy is not ours, but outside, foreign partner, or uh, uh, maybe trade partner. Well, you know, reality is not so much, but perception is also another reality. So. What Japan did, 80s and 90s, I think uh, we didn't retaliate very back to the U.S. The, some the, the anxiety over the Japan's the market closeness and the trade imbalance. Instead, we've tried to find a way to save both. Japanese and um, American uh, people are comfortable, but at the same time, uh, trying to save a framework of uh, free trade and uh, also uh, alliance system. That, the important one is at that time alliance was really, really crucial because of the Cold War. But now, more crucial because of China. So I think uh, uh, that, that's probably the, what uh, the people are trying to do that. And uh, I hope the, the Motengi Lighthizer talk will create such kind of framework, um, so-called so FFR. Do you know FFR means trade talk? Fair and uh, uh, 
free and reciprocal. So FFR sounds like a SSI. I don't know how many people remember what SSI means. Structural, uh, a strategic, uh, strategic structural impediment, right? That, that, that was a, the very old days that Japan and the US has working on. And we got over. And somehow the Japan ended up with more investment in Japan, I'm not, United States, and uh, less uh, anxiety. So uh, why not future? And luckily, the Mr. Lighthizer is a person who has done with Japan uh, in uh, Reagan uh, administration. I think uh, that's very important. And so one thing, I don't know that today the uh, talk is ongoing. I have no idea what, what's the result. But a good thing is that the bilateral economic talk continues. And that's a good sign. Somehow Japan, Japan really has a common interest with the United States to deal with uh, uh, sometimes China's uh, the, uh, the, uh, ignoring uh, international rule or somehow the investment, uh, forcing investment uh, with uh, some in uh, information uh, in China. This kind of thing is uh, shared with uh, not only U.S., but uh, Japan or European countries and other Asian nations. So hope this trade talk may create uh, some ground for the more common uh, ground for the, uh, the promoting uh, international liberal order. That's I really hope. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nabi. We've heard some very interesting insights regarding Japan, uh, but it seems to me in that our topic is uh, Japan, America's neglected ally. The heart of the matter, and certainly the, the part where I think I'd be most able to speak, would be the American uh, side of that equation. And then the general nature of the uh, problem uh, that we're confronting today in U.S.-Japan relations and in Northeast Asia. Um, I think it's important to start with that because we often lose the sight of the forest that we're in uh, by looking uh, in so much detail at the trees. Um, the world uh, that Dulles made uh, in 1952, well, the peace conference uh, September of 1951, the U.S. and Japan were alone in the Pacific. China was under an embargo. Um, Korea was in the midst of a war. Southeast Asia was colonized. They were alone. And the issue was bilateral. The issue today of U.S.-Japan relations, it seems to me, and this is put very starkly by uh, the recent summit in Singapore and developments relating to the Korean Peninsula, is the U.S. and Japan are not alone in the Pacific. And uh, the structural competition within the Pacific, as well as across the continent of Eurasia, is deepening. Of course, China is rising. That's part of it. Korea, of course, has its own interests and is quite assertive, as, as we know, here in Washington and, and elsewhere. The, uh, you know, the South, various Southeast Asian countries, ASEAN and so on, the Russians are in the equation, although I would say marginal. But 
the competition within um, Northeast Asia, both in the region and here in Washington, is intensifying, and also the interests in certain ways are diverging. We can see this clearly, I think, with respect to the North Korean missile issue, which directly challenges Japan, but confronts Korea in a somewhat uh, different form. The most immediate, of course, for Korea, the tangents along the DMZ, for Japan, uh, the, the missiles and the nuclear uh, capability. And then in the future, as that rises, those challenges for the United States. So there's significantly divergent uh, interests. So I think the title of this uh, particular session, Bruce, has been very apt in selecting it because the interests are diverging. And I think it's difficult, uh, and then the United States has to choose among uh, those various uh, competitors in the world and in Washington. Of course, it has a point of departure, the alliance itself, with the United States and also uh, with the Republic of Korea. But if one's orientation is deal-making, the temptation uh, to choose among a number of perspectives that basically are rivals, increasingly rivals of one another, and each of whom has something to offer, uh, is tempting. Um, looking at if the question, to address the question more direct, I do think the structural problem is serious. Uh, it could be, we could be moving, uh, we can see the shadows of offshore balancing where the United States simply picks and chooses among the um, options that it has and looks at the most attractive short-run prospect. That, in a certain sense, could be the art of the deal. Um, that said, of course, as I say, we, we do have a, a context of an alliance. We have a good personal relationship between Prime Minister Abe and um, President Trump. We have, um, I think, and I've been looking at this for 30 years, I think in Tokyo now, one of the most uh, sensitive ambassadors to the overall um, lay of the U.S.-Japan relationship, and certainly on the economic side. He's not a, a specialist really on security, but he has a good uh, DCM, Ambassador Haggerty and uh, DCM Joe Young at the working level. And um, uh, as I say, I don't, you know, I don't say that certainly for people know from any partisan uh, point of view, but I just think uh, having knowing a number of those people at that working level, we have some good people who are involved. I think we have a very good ambassador in India, uh, Ken Juster, as well. And so some of the bases at the working level for both a bilateral relationship that doesn't neglect Japan and also an Indo-Pacific strategy, as Nabe-san was uh, suggesting. I think that's an important part of the broader U.S. Uh, commitment and, and interest right now. The basis of that is there. But the problems, to my mind, and you know, being a student of Reichauer, I guess I reflexively look at the broken dialogue and at communication problems and at the structural difficulties of appointments and people talking past each other and not having an assistant secretary of state 
who's named, who's in, in place, and still having several ambassadors who haven't been named. And, and then just having, so, so it's, not, it's not the problem right down there at the ambassadorial level. I think it's further up the line, and it's coming amidst a situation where there's a structural uh, challenge to the relationship in this deepening uh, competition among various nations for Washington's favor. So um, and we can see some of this even in the trade negotiations that are going on right now. Um, the US, the Trump administration is reflexively pushing for an FTA. And I can see the, the political uh, reasons for that. That said, um, there are so many win-win possibilities in the U.S.-Japan economic relationship right now that that is simply talking past. And some of them, I think, are very constructively being developed by, again, more at the working level. For example, the cooperation between JBIC and uh, OPEC uh, with regard to U.S. LNG exports to third countries. A lot of the big uh, issues where the U.S. and Japan can cooperate are not bilateral, but they're the U.S., Japan in the region. And, um, you know, there's some constructive ideas that are being uh, put out there. But in the trade talks, it's a matter of, okay, when are we going to sign a free trade agreement? And uh, people who have seen this, and, you know, I've been a supporter of a free trade agreement. Ambassador Mansfield was a supporter in the late 1980s. And when I was in U.S. Embassy Tokyo, we had this issue very often came up. And people who know the issue, I think, know rather well uh, that a free trade agreement, um, um, it, it does have an abstract attractiveness, just like Indo-Pacific does. It sounds good. The question is, where are the details? And who's going to, you know, who's going to fill in the blanks? And do you have the people who will do that? Or do you have the conceptualization uh, to do that? And um, I, you know, it, it, it naturally brings up agriculture is one thing it'll bring up. The other thing is autos. And if it's autos, does the U.S. side of the equation really have a serious interest in a solution? So there's these kind of structural problems in the nature of a, a free trade agreement that make it, um, I think, if one is trying to get a win-win out of this, rather than just talking points for the election, uh, something like the, um, you know, the financial uh, investment bank, or financial bank cooperation, like with JBIC and that sort of thing, or working level defense cooperation. A lot of that, of course, is going on, as, you know, many people here know. Uh, we've had I think on the positive side with Secretary Mattis and the Defense Department, again, a rather co very constructive uh, relationship over the last uh, few years on uh, security. So to summarize, not neglected in some key areas, but a broken dialogue or a dialogue of the deaf in a range of important areas. And more importantly than that, a deepening uh, competition structurally across the Pacific that makes it attractive to play everybody against each other and just to get the best deal. But in the end, 
that does violence to a fundamental underlying structure of the relationship uh, that, you know, ever since the, the World War II has preserved stability in the Pacific. Great. Thank you very much. Sheila? Thank you, and thank you, Bruce, for, for inviting me today. Nabisan discussed Japan and Professor Calder, United States, so I'm not sure what I should do. So I want to talk about the U.S.-Japan relationship and its history. Um, you know, we, we, we are a little breathless here in Washington these days about what happens one day and then the next day, and, and um, I think it's worthwhile in forums like this to take a little bit of a step back and think about the relationship over time. Um, we are in a moment, and I agree with both previous speakers, uh, in the region where the security challenges for the United States and Japan, primarily in the Asia-Pacific, but not exclusively, are real and they're growing. So this is an alliance partnership that is vital to both countries, in, in my view. We've watched this over the last year, year and a half now, uh, with North Korea. I think a lot of people know that Japan is worried. Uh, not only about the missiles, but also about the weapons of mass dis destruction. But I think they don't appreciate as much what Mr. Prime Minister Abe has been doing, how Japan has responded. Um, we're used to seeing this in terms of the U.S. ROK Japan response to, to the Korean Peninsula tensions. But of course, remember, early last year, South Korea was getting ready for an election in May. So in fact, President Trump and Prime Minister Abe had an opportunity there to forge a much closer dialogue on the Korean Peninsula than they'd had in the past. Normally, we would turn to Seoul, right? The U.S. policymakers would turn to Seoul when tensions rose. But of course, Seoul wasn't in a position to begin that conversation uh, when the North Koreans were intensifying their missile strikes, or their missile launches, not strikes, sorry, <laughs> launches, uh, in the direction of Japan. So Abe and, and Trump have managed to focus in on the, this part of the threat perception, I think, in a way that previous presidents and prime ministers have not. Um, President Trump stood in Mar-a-Lago. You'll remember they were there first for the, the golf game. Uh, the North Koreans used that opportunity to launch uh, multiple missiles in Japan's direction, and it was the first opportunity for President Trump to actually make a statement uh, about the alliance and U.S. support for Japanese defenses. And of course, he came out and said, we're behind Japan 100%. That, again, was the most emphatic statement at the highest level of the U.S. government in terms of the, the strength of the alliance in deterring aggression against North Korea. It was an opportunity created by the North Koreans Right, um, But it was a statement, once again, despite the campaign rec rhetoric of the previous year, despite some of the worries that were in Tokyo, it was another moment for the alliance to make sure that we were on common ground. Less visible was the U.S.-Japan military uh, exercises and signaling that was going on, the push forward to trilateralize in some way our demonstration of our capabilities in Northeast Asia. So as you watched last year unfold and the North Korean missile launches increase, Japanese and American uh, military were demonstrating their capacity to work together, but they were also synchronizing uh, with South Korea uh, to basically convey to Pyongyang that don't take this, this, these two alliances as separate. If it came to a military conflict, we would both be ready to respond. And that was a new phase as well. Granted, I think we, we didn't see South Korean military on Japanese soil, nor did we see Japanese militaries exercising on South Korean soil, but we did see a synchronization of both the U.S. command and the, in South Korea and in Japan with their allies that was unprecedented, I think, in terms of trying to demonstrate how committed uh, both alliances were to handling 
any kind of use of force by the North. So I think it's important also to look at the diplomatic side. Prime Minister Abe was peripatetic last year. He was at the G G G20 meeting talking about North Korea. He was talking about North Korea in his meetings with Xi Jinping, with Vladimir Putin. He was, a, he was making sure to marshal our European allies. He was very interested in getting this, what's called the sending countries, the UN uh, participants who had gone and fought in the Korean War, the sending countries like Canada, right? France, yeah. other uh, participants in that UN uh, framework that now continues to govern peace on the peninsula to make sure that those partners were also aware uh, of their roles and supportive should anything happen. So again, Japan is not just important because it's physically in Northeast Asia. Both the Japanese military and the political diplomatic um, support last year for a very concerted global response uh, to the, the threat from North Korea, I think was unusual and, and it was quiet, not often appreciated here in the United States. So on the North Korea issue, I'm actually feeling reasonably strong, reasonably positive. I do take uh, Kent's point that you know now that we're in the negotiation phase, now that we're post-Singapore summit, there are some tender spots and we've watched those in the past. We tried to negotiate uh, with Pyongyang. Uh, both in the 90s and again in the six-party talks in the 2000s, right? So we have to be alert to the fact that, again, as Kent pointed out, we may have different priorities in terms of how we perceive the specific threat uh, from North Korea. And we want to make sure, for example, the United States doesn't get too far out ahead on, the, on, on any particular issue and ignore uh, Japanese sensitivities, especially to that missile threat, but also to the broader weapons of mass destruction uh, that the North Koreans uh, possess. So again, synchronization during negotiations is just as important as lining up our troops to deter during moments of tension. And I think it's, it's wise for us to be alert to that. The, the second challenge, of course, is this more amorphous challenge and perhaps less militarily threatening in the in the day-to-day -day, uh, consciousness of all of us. But that's, of course, this geostrategic shift being led by the rise of China in the region. Um, I wrote a book about this uh, in terms of Japanese reactions to it. Japan has felt the pressures from a rising China uh, in large part because they're more proximate. They're right next door. So the Chinese military pressures in the East China Sea have been real. Uh, and the self-defense forces are operating at a higher tempo today uh, and have been for some time now uh, because of that rising military uh, capability and presence of the Chinese maritime forces in particular. Um, it's not the same kind of threat as North Korea, though. It's not a direct existential threat to Japanese safety, but it does shift Japanese perceptions of their own strategic needs. Uh, it does uh, worry a lot of people, Prime Minister Abe, of course, but others in Japan, because the Chinese have been somewhat hesitant on the diplomatic side. And they're in a normal, back-to-normal kind of day-to-day, government-to-government discussions. But what we're hoping by the end of this year is that Prime Minister Abe, in fact, uh, could pay a visit to China, that there could be, again, a res restoration of that high-level summitry that's so important in that, uh, that relationship. Uh, I don't know that there's a, a decision yet, but I'm hoping that that comes to fruition uh, because it's a very important part of stabilizing uh, the region, but it's also critical to Japanese security. But the, the, the larger picture here for the United States and Japan is what kind of Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific, what kind of region are we prepared to help support 
it's not just all about bilaterals. And I don't say that as bilateral relationships are, are, are not important. They are fundamentally important. Um, and I think all three of us have, have described how. But the region in this moment of critical change, right, does need some frameworks for collective mm -hmm. understanding of what, what are the rules of the road. Uh, and we've watched this debate over the maritime sphere emerge, and there is some challenge here. China doesn't feel like it needs to uh, uh, acknowledge some of the existing rules of the road. And like most rising powers, it is challenging us uh, to be clear and fair and uh, cooperative in how we establish those rules and norms. Um, so engaging the Chinese on this conversation is important. Nonetheless, I think the behavior that we're witnessing in the South China Sea has fundamental consequences for how the rest of Asia perceives not only Japan, but the United States, and how those rules are going to be written. So we have a question here about whether or not coercion, be it economic or military, is going to become the norm in Asia. And again, it's very anticipatory. We haven't seen behavior yet that says this is what's going to happen. But we see signposts here uh, that I think we're going to have to be quite alert to and quite responsive to. Uh, if we're going to continue to see an Asia-Pacific that is stable and prosperous and that people can anticipate it's going to be stable and prosperous. Let me say a, um, a little bit, uh, just to follow on Kent's comments here about American politics. Uh, you know, I, I, over the last year, year and a half or so with our new administration, there's been a lot of demand for, well, what is the, what is, what is the alliance like in the Trumpian world? <laughs> and, um, so I find myself writing essays about the Trumpian world. But, but I think I've decided that it's time for us, again, to take a little bit of a longer view here on, um, we don't know yet um, what kind of recalibration is ongoing now in the United States in terms of how the American people feel about the U.S. role in the world. And one of the things I'm grateful for this panel and for Bruce to bring us back to this point is what it should be. And I obviously feel strongly that the United States has a very important role to play uh, in the Asia-Pacific, Indo-Pacific. And our alliances are, are, are the foundation of that role. Uh, and our partners across the region should be our focus of attention. But we've had this debate in the United States before. And especially for our younger participants, I want to remind you, we've had this conversation more than once. This is not new to American politics. Um, we've talked about burden sharing with our allies since the 1960s. And Mike Mansfield, then senator, said, Europeans pay up, right? There was a debate in our Congress about amending our support for NATO to be based on how much the Europeans paid, right? So these are consistent and... Uh, continuous conversations that we ought to be having with our allies on alliance equities. Um, and I think we ought to make sure that the American people support these alliances. And so they're important in that sense. And I think this is where the U.S.-Japan alliance actually looks like one of our stronger relationships at the moment, uh, because I think a lot of some of these indicators are shifting in a direction that the American people should feel more confident about. We've also, and I think both of our speakers have noted here, we've also had our economic reassessments about how we participate in the global economy, uh, whether it's trade deals with Japan or the Plaza Agreement in 1985, whether you go back to the 70s and how, think about the United States and the Smithsonian Agreement, where we were not happy about the dollar, right, being pegged to gold. We've had multiple times in which we have reassessed our global role in managing and in underpin underpinning the global economic order. Uh, I think we continue to have a role to play. 
I think if we abandon that role, we will not be, in the end, better off for it economically, but I will leave that debate to our economists. Um, but neither of these are new. Uh, what I think is new is that we have this confluence of rising threat and in, in this geostrategic shift ongoing in Asia while we ha are beginning to have a fairly fundamental debate in the United States about some of these equities. And if you look at the past, whether it's Eisenhower in the 50s or it's that Nixon-Guam doctrine at late, late 60s into the 1970s and the Carter, right, the Carter uh, decision to or argument to pull out troops from the Korean Peninsula, and then even to the end of the Cold War, where we were all talking about reaping the peace dividend, right? Um, those were periods of relative minor threat assessment. In other words, we all thought that the region was getting better or that our stake was less necessary. It was rare that we have this debate at the same time where we are cognizant, and our national security strategy and national defense strategy make this clear, we're cognizant this is a period of intense, intensifying major power competition. So that's where I think it's important for the alliance, whether it's this alliance or the USROK alliance or NATO, right? We are seeing increasing indications of strategic competition, and yet we are undercutting or reassessing the value of our alliances. And that's, I think, where people like us start to get a little worried. I don't worry about the reassessment by the American people of what our interests are or what, how we ought to recalibrate equities. I do worry that we will do it in a way that suggests that we don't care about the strategic competition uh, in the Asia-Pacific. And that, for me, would be a grave mistake. And it would also deeply worry our ally in Japan. Because as both speakers have said, Japan doesn't have other alternatives. And that is not a pressure point that we should be pushing on. It is a recognition of the consequences of getting this wrong, right, for Japan, right? So again, I just wanted to pull in the excellent points that my speakers have made here in terms of we have some short-term decisions to make. But I think we do have a pretty critical moment for making sure that we don't neglect Japan, that we don't underestimate the fundamental importance of this relationship uh, in, in both respects. So thank you, Bruce. All right, well, three great presentations. Um, before I throw the floor open to questions, just to let me paint admittedly a, a, a dark picture, and it may just be the, the grumpy jet lag talking, um, and it risks going to focusing too much on the trees that, and not the forest, as Ken, Ken counseled against, and it may ignore the positive long-term trends that, that Sheila talked of. But, you know, the U.S. pulled out of TPP, which Japan had put political capital into, including the U.S., were very clearly pushing back against a bilateral FTA with Japan. Um, you know, Abe had developed the best relationship of any leader with Trump. And then it seems there could be questions in Japan of, but what did it get us? There was no preferential treatment on tariffs and, you know, kind of – Japan, like many, were surprised by a change in policy on North Korea. So is it a, wow, we thought we were shoulder to shoulder walking down a path, and then all of a sudden Japan's walking down that path alone. Um, there's a lot of talk, not just about Japan, but it includes Japan, about ungrateful allies, not paying enough. And then even when many of us have pointed out that Japan and South Korea and others do pay 
a large share of reimbursing the costs of U.S. forces overseas. And of course, it's in our own interest to have for forces overseas. Um, that Japan has paid a lot um, and that uh, Abe has done a lot. Uh, Sheila was, was referring, I think, to a long list of security reforms and, and implementation of policy that the U.S. has long been calling for. And Abe has done a lot of those on his watch. Um, and, you know, I think overall of the total U.S. Pacific military construction budget of $39 billion, Japan and South Korea are paying $32 billion of it, including uh, not only U.S. facilities in South Korea and Japan and Okinawa, but even Japan paying for facilities in Guam, clearly not their own territory. Um, but still, even when that's pointed out, there's a lot of, yeah, but. It's still not enough. Um, continuing on my litany. Uh, North Korea policy. Japan, like many of us, surprised by the shift from seemingly brink of war to negotiations. Nabe talked about concern about maybe too many concessions. Um, but also in that, there's sort of a context of over there. We've seen Senator Graham, President Trump, kind of referring to the region over there you know, as very distant, distant, distant and distinct. Um, and that's both in a concept of war, of like, you know, well, yeah, there'd be a war, but it would be over there. So, well, we have all these troops as well as U.S. civilian citizens over there. And, of course, we are committed uh, by treaty as well as doing the right thing to protect our allies. Um, but even in the sense of if we, we kind of have a magical solution to the nuclear problem, and as nations are looking to help rebuild North Korea, it'd be like, well, yeah, Japan and South Korea would pay for it. Um, so kind of admittedly overly negative, uh, is that um, like, well, Bruce, you know, didn't you listen to our presentations? That's overly negative. Uh, Reread your notes. But if it isn't overly negative, it's the where does Japan go? Uh, it, does, it can't seem to go it alone for all the constraints that are on its security, uh, self-imposed and imposed by others. It's in a bad neighborhood. It's facing a, you know, a rising China. You know, two dragons can't occupy the same mountain at once. So, you know, wither Japan. Are there things that it, is it now feeling we do have to do things differently? We can't rely on the U.S. like we, we could. Or is it Oh, Bruce, this is a tempest in a teapot, and you need to look at the longer trends. I'll just throw it, throw it open to anyone. I guess the first thing I would say, I think to some degree you're, you're going to get hedging to the extent that the U.S. commitment isn't clear or what it is that um, the U.S. does doesn't reflect Japanese interests. It, it, well, may take time, but and it'll be quiet. But but it, there's some degree of hedging. I think we can all we can see a little bit of this in the evolution in the last two years or so. I'd be interested in how uh, Sheila sees that of the Japan-China relationship. Some of this isn't the foreign ministry; it's uh, Mati or some of the other ministries. But you know, starting a couple of years ago, Belt and Road got more some prominence in the or the trade white paper. A lot of companies, of course, would like to participate in Belt and Road. 
Um, now, uh, Li Keqiang has come to Tokyo, and Prime Minister Abe is going to Beijing, and there's talk of, um, you know, pr President Xi coming back to Japan. Uh, that's all just sort of diplomatic, and it reflects the 40th anniversary of the anti-hegemony treaty. But, you know, I, I think there is a certain element of hedging that would almost inevitably uh, be the case, not only with respect to China, but diversifying foreign policy. Um, what Nabe-san said about Malta is very interesting, a broader Japanese strategic relationship that, of course, did exist during World War I that was much more global, that involved Europe. And, you know, some of the people who've been sent, Takamizawa-san in Geneva and representation at NATO, Japan certainly is globalizing some of its interests in a hedging uh, sort of way. Uh, it would be interesting to me to see what will happen. I don't think it'll be overt, but it must be a difficult situation for Japan with respect to Iran in that uh, the administration feels so strongly about that, but China says that they're not going to respect uh, the embargo on oil. They're not going to increase their uh, imports, but they're not going to cut them back. And, of course, Japan has had a relationship with Iran that goes back 100 years that's been relatively good historically. So I think I don't think we'll see things that will directly contradict uh, core U.S. interests. I would not think that, for example, that, that the hedging on the Iran question, we'll see much of that. But we can, we saw it on China, we'll see it. Well, in India, what can India do? Of course, that's, the two countries can agree on, uh, U.S. and uh, Japan can agree. That one may gain some momentum. But we'll see different kinds of hedging, that's my sense. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the hedging is going to be soft and gentle hedging. <laughs> I don't think it's abrupt. It's not going to be as if it's not the U.S., therefore there's an alliance with China. I don't think we're seeing, going to see that. But I think what you can see clearly um, is on the trade side, and I, again, I say this in praise, not in criticism, but on the trade side, even though Prime Minister Abe uh, continues to try to persuade President Trump of the benefits of a regional framework for thinking about uh, free trade, he did it in the golf cart at Mar-a-Lago early on about TPP. He continues to do it now. I don't know if you were listening at the joint statement the last time he came to visit, it wasn't the last time, it was the second to last time, um, but the, the second summit when uh, Abe and Trump basically talked about North Korea and then they talked about trade. And what you heard from Prime Minister Abe was the free, open, reciprocal Indo-Pacific. And the president said, hmm, I like bilaterals better, mm -hmm. but if you, if you show me this is a good thing, I will, <laughs> I'm willing to listen. So I think Abe is still working the problem. Um, he may not be using TPP language. He may not think that the CPTPP is going to be the, the, the place where this happens for this administration. But he's using the Indo-Pacific concept in a different way to say, let's set the table uh, on the Indo-Pacific now. Um, and so that may be indicative of where we see the tension as we watch the Lighthizer talks or, or, or other things evolving. But Japan does want to see a regional frame right, uh, for the trade relationship between the United States and Japan, because it doesn't make sense, I think, otherwise, to think about it that way. Um, they don't buy in, and I think, you know, Ken, 
Deputy Prime Minister Asso was has been very frank and very blunt and very in the in, in the public about this that they don't see a free trade agreement as fixing the deficit problem. So they don't see it as the right instrument to address the deficit, and which is what the Trump administration wants to address the deficit. So there's a disconnect there on, okay, that may be the problem, but this instrument is not going to do it for us. And that's the way Deputy Prime Minister also has consistently said, uh, responded to this conversation by Ambassador Huggerty and, and others about the problem of the deficit. Again, we've got a lot of problem solving on that side of the relationship. Um, but on the, the larger question, I think largely this Prime Minister, Prime Minister Abe, uh, has sought to persuade and inform and explain. And <laughs> so it's less, it's less hedging than taking the time to lay out the downsides of certain kinds of behaviors, be they economic or the North Korea, frankly, for that matter, right? And in public, again, Japan, Prime Minister Abe's Japan has been very supportive of the maximum pressure strategy on the sanctions, on other things. So you don't see the open discord that you see, for example, at the NATO meetings, or you see with Angela Merkel, or you see even sometimes with Jane, right, early on. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a stylistic difference, but I think it's an important one, that I think Japan will be the behind-the-scenes advisory kind of ally, not the taking it on head-on. I have one exception, and that is if we move forward with Section 232 uh, tariffs on autos. There, Japan's interests are just too deeply. And again, I don't know if my pan the panelists agree with me here. That's right. I, whether it's Mr. Abe or right. somebody else, Japan will retaliate. I will, Japan will have to retaliate. So its own economic interests, right, industrial interests will be at stake. And so you won't be able that, – that won't be the pattern that, of behavior, I think, that we'll see – that we've seen to date. On the larger question of where do they go, I don't see Japan-China as an alternative to the U.S.-Japan alliance. I just don't see it. We'd have to be in a very, very different world. We may be in that world mm -hmm. 10 years from now, and we may all come back, <laughs> and it may be different, but not in the foreseeable future. I think the strategic competition between Japan and China is real. Mm -hmm. I think the long-term concern about China's uh, military power is very real in Tokyo. Um, and I think that's where the U.S. and Japan may have some differences in, in emphasis. We may not be as concerned at times as the Japanese will be on Chinese military power. But that's partly explained by they live right next door, and they will be affected. No matter what the Chinese decide to do, they will be affected by that military power. Um, on the, the global net network of production, though, you could see the Chinese invite the Japanese into a different conversation about trade in the region. And again, this is my worry, right, about the auto tariffs, right, in terms of how it affects the political side of the U.S.-Japan relationship. Beijing has the same set of interests that Mr. Abe articulates, right? right. Um, and so you could see, and I'm not saying we should be afraid of this conversation with the Chinese, but I could see that that would be an interesting and intriguing place for mm -hmm. Xi Jinping to uh, try to draw Mr. Abe into conversation again, should the United States move forward on the auto tariffs. So you could see policy uh, steps that see Japan and China aligned on specific economic issues like that, but I don't see them in a strategic sense, in our old-fashioned sense of, you know, billiard ball kind of shifting of alliances. Mm -hmm. I don't see that. I, um, I think I, I, I'm pretty much agree with the, 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 the Shira's uh, the talk, especially the, the Japan's interest to remove uh, uh, two, three, two, right? That's serious because uh, automakers, automobiles, uh, 
export is a very serious one. So, uh, but also, I, 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 I say that Japan don't have a real alternative to the alliance with the United States. That's very true, uh, any administration. But uh, remember that in the 50, 1950, that uh, if uh, the Japanese politics watcher is a says that ninety fifty was a very interesting moment. That um, liberal democratic party was created. Why? I think uh, the, at that time Japan, Japan the socialist party, Japan socialist party was a very strong and uh, some ca- somehow attractive alternative. And uh, ninety fifty was a year Japan had uh, the San Francisco uh, peace treaty. And at that time, uh, two division in the Japanese uh, the, the public opinion. One is a socialist. I think uh, we should have a peace treaty not only with the U.S. and Europe, but uh, Soviet Union and the uh, People's Republic of China. And uh, such uh, opinion was uh, popular at that time. But uh, uh, wisely, Japanese public uh, chose a uh, uh, conservative Party, um, conservative party really needed to have a strong power. So uh, uh, several conservative party merged as a liberal democratic party. So you know, of course, no alternative for Japan so far. But uh, don't underestimate uh, some uh, party dynamics because uh, I think uh, Abe, Prime Minister Abe, is uh, popular somehow and uh, very strong. So and LDP is uh, somehow strong, but. Uh, no guarantee. It's, uh, LDP has been very strong because of uh, Japan's economic prosperity and uh, very good, uh, um, the um, very short-term uh, uh, and uh, continuous uh, economic development too, uh, without creating a huge income gap. So that was a very good political resources. But current Japan is not, unfortunately. Many fi- financial burden in the future already for the social uh, security cost, uh, medical cost, and uh, also uh, the aging. So um, I don't think uh, Japan has a very good future rosy, rosy scenario. So that's why Japan probably don't have uh, many alternative, like, uh, okay, the wild scenario, like, uh, oh, we need a plan B and uh, uh, create our own uh, striking capability and nuclear. And uh, may- maybe the uh, the not so easy to have an alliance. Maybe try to be the more non-alignment and the closely leaning to other Russia and the China. That's very bad scenario. But uh, theoretically, we could think of death. I don't think that is a, the happy scenario for Japan and the uh, uh, Japanese public are pragmatic enough so far, so far. But economic. Uh, uh, it, it, the prosperity is gone and the very people are frustrating with. Some people may choose a very bad reader. That, that's um, the week to think of. Great, thank you. All right, so we'll uh, throw open the uh, floor for questions. Um, I think we have a uh, microphone, so if you could wait till the microphone gets to you and say your name and affiliation, and then if you could keep your questions short. Right here, sir. Thank you, man. Thank you very much for a great conversation. I'm Takahiro Motegi, BCM fellow at the CSS Japan Chairman, Nabe-san's Kohai. My question goes to Shira-san and Nabe-san. Question to, I mean, Shira-san is that, I mean, related to the contradiction between U.S. and China, I'm sorry, Japan. And so except 232, don't you think 
kind of a view between, I mean, Nabe-san said that Prime Abe is not against, I mean, one by one road, but still, I mean, Trump, President Trump mentioned that he, I mean, in Twitter criticized it, um, by the road or something like that, but do you think one by one road has become a kind of contradiction between U.S. and Japan? And in my understanding, China's, well, China's understanding, Prime Minister Abe also confirmed that Japan, Japanese government or Prime Minister Abe, I mean, from that Japan would join, I mean, Berlin Road. And this is question to Shia-san. And the question to Nabe-san is, there used to be a report that Prime Minister Abe had an intention to meet with, I mean, Kim Jong-un. I haven't seen any report since, I mean, this few months. Is there any, I mean, comment on that? Have you ever seen any kind of report about that? Thank you. Thank you. So do you want me to take the, I'll, I'll take the, um, the first question. Thank you for that. I, I think the Obor, the Japanese approach to Obor is in some ways, or at least the government approach, I should say, has been to um, have it on the table in the conversation. So when Lee visited for the trilateral, visited to Japan, that, that was on the table. I think that Japan and China have agreed to search for a possible project that maybe they can cooperate on. Uh, I think what the what Tokyo's intentions there are not to in, endorse Obor, right, but to find a place where they can raise the standards, right, and engage China in a discussion about a high high standard global norm kind of approach to infrastructure, right, be it energy, be it other places, right. Um, so I think there's a there's a desire to see if they can find that spot, and maybe it's emblematic in a project where that would be workable. I don't know, and I think if we do have a summit meeting, we'll find out whether they've managed to do that or not. But but I think it's a little bit like the AAIB conversation, right? Which is China is putting its capital at the service of a multilateral bank, right? So let's make that a global standard multilateral. Let's make that a workable solution. And by that, the governance structure has to be at the same, it has to, to match global standards. If it's just a tool of Chinese hegemony, we're not interested, right? Um, and I think, as you may know, the Ministry of Finance in Japan was a little bit more forward-leaning because they had colleagues, Chinese colleagues, right? They had conversations in the past. They had mm -hmm. some sense that there was a constructive conversation that might be able to happen. Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I don't think more. Not so, not so happy. But it depends on who you talk to, I think. I think there's – maybe I shouldn't say it's a bureaucratic interest, but there were some who thought there was some – some room there to move the move the needle on Chinese performance, but I think on Obor it's a little easier because the projects are smaller. Strategically, though, just to take that back, I don't think there's a Japanese endorsement of Chinese ambitions for Obor. Uh, I, but I think there could be some sort of tinkering in terms of finding a place. The flip side of that on the U.S.-Japan side is, and I think Kent referred to this, the JBEC-OPEC conversation is also about U.S.-Japanese coordination and cooperation in projects, infrastructure projects in the region. Now, they'll be very different, right? They'll of necessity be very different. But I think we all recognize the need for infrastructure development, and I think what we want to do is shape the way in which that happens, and I think that's where you'll see it. I don't think at this point we should see that, though, as a big endorsement of OBOR. I, if I could just add, I'm doing some work on exactly this point, and I think that the magnitudes <laughs> is something we have to consider. You know, the, uh, Secretary Pompeo's proposal, $113 million, 
high-quality infrastructure and, you know, Belt and Road is on the order of 900 billion. So the, the scale, the, the simple scale, I think, of a lot of what the Chinese are doing is something that draws, certainly it draws some corporate interest. And I would say, in, in interbureaucratically, more than MOF, uh, my impression is uh, uh, Minister Asso, of course, is very skeptical of China along these lines. But in Met within METI, of course, they're closer to the business world. Uh, you know, there's more pragmatism about uh, some sort of working cooperation, nothing formalized, but the simple scale of the projects, I think, suggests that there's an attractiveness. Oh, yes. Uh, one correction. I said that the LDP was created in 1950. No, it's in 1955, after five years of uh, San Francisco Peace Treaty. And the San Francisco Peace Treaty was uh, also, I think, the year of, uh, at the same time, uh, Japan-U.S. Uh, Mutual Security Treaty. And uh, the answer to the the the, the Prime Minister Abe's uh, willingness to see the bilateral talk with a, a North Korean counterpart, I think that's very kind of a hedge to the either case. But you know, um, remember when the Japanese leader had a direct talk with North Korean uh, leader? That was a uh, uh, Prime Minister Koizumi's visit to Pyongyang. And at that time, U.S. was uh, uh, President Bush, Jr. And uh, first Bush, very hard against uh, uh, the North Korea regime and uh, tried to somehow, very critical to the framework, framework agreement which was made by the Clinton administration. And uh, uh, at that time, the major player was uh, Under Secretary of State, John Bolton. So, uh, at that time, North Korea was really, really pressed and uh, feel uneasy and uh, really need to talk with U.S. But uh, U.S. don't want to talk without any clear nuclearization agreement something conditioned. And uh, uh, so, uh, uh, North Korea's leader, the Kim Jong-il, uh, somehow decided to see Koizumi. Koizumi is so close to Bush and also expecting some economic aid. So, and, uh, uh, but uh, Koizumi didn't see uh, without condition. Condition is a clarification of uh, abductee issue. That is a starting point. North Korea first admitted their abductees, the abduct, their the abduction of uh, the Japanese uh, ordinary citizen. So, um, this time, uh, of course, the first uh, Trump administration's uh, strong pressure over North Korea, but now showing some room and uh, uh, we, we never know. You, Japanese don't know. So some kind of hedge is uh, probably if things is uh, going so go on, uh, like an uh, agreement of uh, denuclearization is uh, implemented and uh, the North Korean talk with the U.S. and the other is ongoing, Japan would face any way Japan need to talk. And the issue is uh, uh, Japan is expected to help economic, uh, economic development aid. And uh, but Japanese ordinary uh, the people, people's reaction is uh, where's the abduction issue? And uh, actually the Prime Minister Abe himself is a leader to make it clear for the abduction issue. So I think it's safe to say we are open for the open channel 
to talk about it. And uh, uh, that's clearly if things is uh, going uh, ahead, uh, ready to talk to the such kind of things. But uh, abduction issue must become first. And that's clearly Abe, uh, Premier Minister Abe keep, keep telling uh, 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 President Trump and the President Trump clearly understand, and he's a very amazingly uh, brought uh, the, such an issue with a talk with uh, the Kim Jong Un. Uh, so I think uh, that is the case so far. So, but we never know what's going on in the, between the U.S. and uh, uh, North Korea. So it's safe hedge for the Abe to the open talk, and uh, Abe is uh, using uh, some secret channel like uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, uh, Prime Minister Koizumi. I don't think so. It did seem like there was more talk about it, uh, an Abe-Kim summit earlier when, you know, Kim was sort of the, the diplomatic debutante of the year and everyone wanted to get on board the, the train of, you know, well, if everyone else is meeting with him, I guess I'd better. Otherwise, Japan looks like they're left out. Um, but North Korea was very dismissive of the abductee issue and said it's been solved, move on. Um, and then now as the U.S.-North Korea talks are, you know, I think more publicly becoming clear that we're not getting anywhere and North Korea released another grumpy gram last night or this morning sort of, you know, no, 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 what don't you get about no, um, that Abe may feel like, well, okay, if the train is faltering, he doesn't need to put as much effort into getting a summit. Uh, you know, otherwise it looked like he was being left out. Uh, thank you for coming. This is a really great conversation. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, a uh, member of uh, Heritage Foundation. Uh, I'm a Japan native U.S. citizen. I've been here about 45 years, so I have limited uh, information coming into me personally. Uh, what I want to talk about is uh, the security treaty, as you mentioned, uh, saved Japan but that the Japan that put Japan into uh, back seat, mm -hmm. not the front seat. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, U.S. is sitting in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. uh, but the trouble is, I feel that Japan was complacent being in the back seat. That really saddens me. Uh, it's a two-way street, and America did not urge Japan to come up here to the front seat, the passenger seat. And they didn't do that either, so it's a two-way street. But um, my question is, instead of concentrating on economics so much, uh, Japan should been concentrating on the uh, uh, security treaty, Article 9, changing the Constitution to a little more, not aggressive, but uh, assertive uh, positions. Uh, um, but they didn't do that. It takes opportunity to do that. Now we, they have a, that opportunity, North Korea. So maybe they should uh, concentrate on that. So that way, Japan can help America a little more, so to speak. So uh, 
my question is, what do you think of that? <laughs> May I? Yeah. Um, actually, uh, the Abe has done a lot today in the context of uh, the Japan would sit in the front seat. Um, as for the defending uh, Japanese territory, Japan is already. Um, looking back, uh, uh, like uh, U.S.-Japan Security Corporation, Defense Corporation against the Soviet Union, uh, I think as a clearly, the, especially naval, naval cooperation in the Japan was uh, very secretly sitting in the front seat, seriously. So, uh, but um, now try to be more. Uh, so I think a change of uh, interpretation of Article 9 was a, a very safe way to change, and Abe did. And also Abe passed uh, uh, the security legislation, and that, that was clearly the, uh, the, in the case of Japan's territorial defense and also situation would affect Japan's uh, uh, the security gravely. Is a case for the Japan can exercise right of collective defense means uh, can sit with a front seat seat uh, with the United States. And uh, um, other case, not. But uh, the, probably they do take a time. And uh, um, the, again, limitation is not legal one, like Article 9. But uh, more, I think, uh, the, the budgetary and the equipment and the training, and that's ongoing. Like, uh, you know, the Japan's uh, self-defense forces is uh, now developing a lot of uh, amphibious capability with uh, coordination with the uh, U.S. military. So well, that, that's really um, the something. And uh, um, but, but also sometimes uh, the limitation of Japan, that's uh, like, a, okay, the patrolling uh, uh, South China Sea with the U.S. Uh, Navy, that's beyond the current uh, ability. And uh, so the Japan's approach is uh, other, like other nations, very rationally and uh, incrementally. But uh, clearly, go, go, um, changing a lot. Just a follow on, on the South China Sea, it, it, Japan participated in the uh, Somali piracy operations, mm -hmm. um, obviously very far from home and from mm -hmm. shores. Would operating in the South China Sea, if Japan is saying it, it doesn't want to be involved, is that a lack of capabilities or lack of wanting to be so confrontational openly with China? You know what? I think a lack of uh, the capability means uh, that because the Japan's, uh, Japanese ne ne self-defense forces, never self-defense forces, and uh, also the Coast Guard is a too busy to defend our own East China Sea territory, seriously. Okay. So um, that makes sense because we are the, the trying to very hard to, to defend our own territory in East Asia. I think uh, the U.S. Navy has, can spend more time, more energy over the, the South China Sea. And also, uh, I said that, that regular patrol is uh, beyond the current capability. But occasionally, as you pointed out, uh, the I think uh, issue-based uh, self-defense forces is uh, participating in uh, the, the exercise and uh, beyond the, uh, our territory. So I think the uh, situation is uh, uh, gradually changing to the very positive way. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I was going to... I was going to... A, add to what Nabe said, but also Nabe-san said, but also to get back to this question of Article 9. You know, I've just finished a book manuscript that talks about a little bit about 
the Japanese decision making on military force, right? We, we is Japan doing more? Is it doing less? And there's a lot of confusion in my mind, not in my mind, but there's a lot of confusion in the debate about Article Nine. And so my, if you read Article Nine, what it says, whether you like it or don't like it, but what it basically says is Japan won't use military force for coercion, right? It will not no longer use force to settle international disputes. But the Japanese government has always interpreted Article Nine to allow for self defense. Right. And if you go back to the diet debates in the 50s, they're very frank. Does that mean nuclear weapons? Yes. Well, we, if necessary for our defense, we'll get them. Does it mean strike forces? Yes. Mm-hmm. If necessary for our self-defense, yes, we'll get them. What about preemptive strike? I mean, so you go to those early debates. Mm-hmm. And again, remember the self-defense forces were mm-hmm. created in 1954. Mm-hmm. The early interpretation doesn't limit Japanese military capability. At that point, again, it was as... It was just us and Japan. There was, you know, in the abstract, there wasn't any major existential threat to Japan. But in the abstract, no Japanese leaders at the time were really willing to put a put a lid on Japanese capability for self defense, and that's a big elastic concept, right? So I think I, I am less convinced that Article Nine is the solution to the problem. The question is, when you say what, what would it look like for me? What it would, what what would it look like to have Japan in the driver's seat? And I, I guess I'm just supporting Nabisan's point of view that. When it comes to Japanese defenses, defense capability, and the use of force against aggression, I think the SDF are in the driver's seat. Um, they may not be able to do it, given depending on who the who the attacker is, right? And I think that's where things have changed. So the minute you start seeing the Chinese government send government forces to the Senkakus, right, you start to see this question of real concern about a military engagement with China. There's always been an existential question about the potential of Chinese military capability. But in terms of threat perception, I think you really see shifts uh, around that 2010 uh, defense plan, but it absolutely accelerated thereafter, right? And then, of course, there's the North Koreans' belligerence has been a very specific threat to Japan. So I think you're going to see, remember the, this year, is a, a, there'll be a new national defense plan and a new five-year procurement plan. And we will see just how far out Japan goes. But I, I, I tend to agree. It's less about um, being in the front or the back seat, but it's about really how, how fast and how far the, the, the government can pull the Japanese people and how much money they're going to be able to spend quickly. But I, that, that would be my interpretation here. But it depends on how you define the front and the back seat, right? Is it capability-driven? Is it in terms of the decision-making government decision-making. I think there's a lot of factors in that analogy, and, and, and I think, at least in theory, it may not be Article 9. It may be the political uh, and fiscal constraints that are operating inside Japan largely. I guess I would just add that uh, we shouldn't depreciate the major changes that have occurred just in the last four years or so in the operational side and, and the synergies between the two countries. Um, you know, and under especially since the uh, changes in the uh, definition of collective self-defense, it seems to me that's important. Maybe Nabesan is underestimating to some extent at least the capabilities that Japan now has under a collective self-defense. Whether it wants to exercise them is another question. Of course, in South Sudan, we saw you know, an incident where it didn't seem to have gone uh, terribly well. But Japan has one of the largest mine-sweeping forces in the world, for example. Now, why that can't be used 
in the Strait of Hormuz or in the South China Sea or in a whole range of places, potentially, given the changes that have been made under collective self-defense. I think, you know, there, there probably are, there's a significant range of things and in terms of defense co-production and, you know, the guidance systems for our Tomahawk missiles and cruise missiles and so on. You know, in defense production, there's both very substantial interdependence that aids the defense of both countries. And I think, I would say in the last four or five years, those synergies have increased uh, quite a bit to the extent that the, no doubt, Article 9, an important symbolic issue, but a, more the, the subst on the substantive side, there have been some really important changes. And on the minesweeping, um, there have been some multilateral exercises near the Strait of Hormuz, including South Korea. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a way of practicing kind of Korean theater of operations, uh, you know, joint work or bilateral or multilateral work, but not practicing it close to the Korean Peninsula, which would be very controversial, but it's a way of getting Japan uh, and the South Korean militaries working together, even if it's away from Korea, but for Korean operations. Yeah. Um, I know uh, several of our panelists have follow-on commitments that I, I promised I'd get them out of here on time. So uh, I think we're close to the end, or according to your watch, we My are. My watch is best. All right, we'll take one more question, <laughs> uh, but we'll keep it quick and I'll get them out of here. So, uh, sir. Uh, Ken Joseph, I teach at Chiba University. I just have a um, kind of a simple question. Um, particularly, the older Japanese are extremely concerned that at the end of the day, this is nothing more than a well-organized return to the pre-war uh, situation. And it all sounds very technical, but for those of us in Japan, particularly those of us who were born and raised there and grew up hearing all the stories, uh, there's a deep, deep underlying fear that uh, at the end of the day, it is simply uh, a gradual return to that, and that one day we'll wake up and there'll be an announcement that American forces have been asked to leave. Congratulations on the independence of the country, and we're back to where we were before. So I just like some of your feelings on that, and um, the, the general feeling of the Japanese people is very strongly uh, to protect the Constitution, because at the end of the day, uh, everybody knows the day after the last American troops leave, Japan is back to where it was before. Sadly, the democratic situation has not developed to a point where um, it's able to stand by it. So that's what most, most Japanese think uh, personally, but probably would never say. So I'd just like your thoughts on the uh, another view of it, that this is simply returning back to where we were, and we're about 1930 or 31 right now. All right. Let's not big up for a citizen. Right, right. That's right. Let me let me try first. I think uh, um, go back to the pre-war uh, situation is a very um, the unthinkable. The reason is simply the international situation is different. So you know the uh, at the same time uh, uh, the Japan the deep rooted Japanese deep rooted uh, the anti-war is anti-war is not general anti-war anti the former leadership who, who conducted so irresponsible war managing in World War II was a deep rooted. 
I think that is a combined with a summer pacifism. So, well, you know, that doesn't apply to the defense, I believe. And Article 9 is a kind of a manifest. We never go to the, the, the very big troubled war conducts. So, um, so I think uh, that is uh, the clearly the people share the memory of uh, uh, World War II, especially the war against Japan, the war, um, war against the U.S., and the war against China. That was terrible wars. So um, the situation is a really the different, but the most different situation is a what? I think a clearly the, the Japan has an alliance with the United States and also somehow the democratic nation and the shared with uh, common values and uh, the shared economic prosperity. And that's shared with China too. Uh, not, not democratic things, but uh, the economic prosperity is uh, really shared with China. So I think uh, the, uh, some people easily say, oh, that the Japan is, uh, oh, Abe is a ultranationalist and go back to, but you know, that, that is a fantasy and fake news, especially the, in the English world. I was amazed that when Abe came to, Abe is an outspoken nationalist. That was a three days or four, um, three years or four years, or five years ago. But uh, I don't think uh, now uh, Abe is described such a way. So I think uh, Abe is a foreign minister, defense minister is uh, coming from a uh, uh, liberal faction of LDP and a very reasonable, rational person. So, um, um, you know, the, the image is uh, sometimes easily utilized by especially the opposition to LDP or opposition to Abe in the media. But reality is not. And uh, uh, the Abe tend to be the, the pragmatic uh, realist rather than uh, ideological hawk. Well, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not defending Abe. That is because of Japan's economy and the politics is stable. Well, Nippon Kaigi is, uh, you know, the kind of uh, the, uh, the uh, people who love uh, nostalgia of old one and the frustrated current situation also, too. Uh, the, uh, and uh, unfortunately, or well, fortunately, uh, maybe, that uh, their, their influence is very limited. And especially the, if Abe stepped down, who's going to carry Nippon Kaigi? I don't see any prominent politician in LDP would carry. So that's probably not so worried about it, if current economic stability and continues. So wild card is a, like a, a pre-war Japan again. So um, like a, a, the old trouble, the, the economy and the trade block the trade, and uh, that's really bad. That, but that is, it's not uh, Japan's responsibility, but uh, it's up to the U.S. leader, I believe. I know we're pressed for time, so I'll, be, I'll make my comments very brief. I, I just cannot cannot buy into this idea that the U.S.-Japan alliance is the protector of Japanese democracy today. And again, that may be generational for me, or maybe as I'm an outside observer, I could just be wrong. But to tell you the truth, I, I think we have to empirically just test this, some of these you know, big hypotheses a bit, right? If that were true, then we would have seen a much higher defense spending in Japan. <laughs> in other words, the democratic process in Japan is not protected by the alliance, right? Nor, I think, does the alliance dictate the choices of the Japanese voters, right? There's a lot of times in the history in the last 70 years when the U.S. governments would have liked a very different outcome in policy. Um, so that's one piece of the puzzle. The other is, I think, 
the Nippon Kaiki conversation has gotten very heated lately, and I think it's largely because of the association with Abe, and also because Nippon Kaigi activities have become much more overt, whereas before they were very quiet and down in localities and local communities, and nobody sort of worried about their national presence. They've been given a little bit more opportunity to articulate their views in public under the current prime minister, and so I granted. But if two-thirds of the Diet members are Nippon Kaigi members, then, then you should have seen some very different conversations. If, if you really do tie a direct tie between Nippon Kaigi and the outcome of legislative process in Japan, we would have seen some very different legislative outcomes, I think, on things like the abdication of the emperor. There's all kinds of sensitive issues where Nippon Kaigi has views, right? And yet you don't see that reflected in the legislative voting behavior and things like that. I just think it, it, your, your concerns may be right, about the the pressures that may be on the Japanese politics. I think they're true of all of our democracies at the moment. You can look at Europe. You can look at us. You can look in, in Asia. All democracies, right, are subject to these kinds of pressures. And I think just putting it a little bit more in comparative and, and then looking at specific issues to see whether or not our fears are warranted is probably a wise course of action. Thank you. All right. Well, I, th I think the sign of a good uh, discussion is we've run out of time before we've run out of questions. So if you please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you. Hey, that was great. I was going to say. I still feel bad about that. Good to see you. Good to see you. It was fun. We should do this more often. Thank you. That was great. No, no, no. It was really fun. Really good question. Good to see you again. No, not at all. Thank you for your question. Yeah, I think I'm coming down.